Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. This is a Literary Studies podcast, and I'm Natalia, one of the hosts on the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Mikola Soroka, the author of Faces of Displacement, The Writings of Volodymyr Venichenko. Hello, Mikola. Hi, Natalia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, before we start our discussion of your book, would you mind if you tell us a few words about your professional background? Uh, of course. I did my uh, bachelor's and master's degree in Ukrainian literature at the Tarashchenko National University of Kiev. Uh, my master's actually resulted in the publication of a monograph, my first monograph on visual poetry in Ukrainian Baroque literature. That work gave me an um, incredible impetus for innovative research, uh, I would say. Um, I taught courses in Ukrainian literature at uh, my alma mater until I went to Harvard University as a Fulbright scholar. I obtained my PhD in modern languages and cultural studies at the University of Alberta. And after my postdoctoral research at the University of Toronto, I came back to the University of Alberta to work at the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies. Um, currently, I am independent scholar. Well, wonderful. That interest in Baroque literature sounds very <laughs> intriguing. <laughs> and it's it's such a, uh, well, maybe it's not a huge change from Baroque liter- literature to uh, the writings of Volodymyr Vodnichenko. I'm sure there are some connections there, but that's that's quite intriguing. So that was Baroque that's... literature in the Ukrainian area? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your uh, book is uh, titled Faces of Displacement, the Writings of Volodymyr Vodnichenko. How did this project uh, develop? How did it start and evolve? Um, actually, there is a connection um, now between my previous topics and which was Baroque uh, literature and Venichenko. There is uh, no time uh, difference, but in my research, I al- always looked for unexplored topics, something which was uh, not pay attention much. So, and that terra incognita for me was um, Ukrainian literature written outside mainland Ukraine. Call it emigre or diaspora literature. So, I started to explore uh, literature uh, at Harvard, uh, which eventually flowed into my PhD research, and then, as you can see, in a monograph. Um, so, why um, Venichenko? Um, because he was a major Ukrainian figure in literature and politics, and his writings uh, actually has just returned from a long oblivion of the Soviet prohibition and aroused much interest mm-hmm. at the time. So, uh, but if you were asked to draw his literary portrait, uh, what would you say? Uh, I'm sure Vinichenko is well known in Ukraine, and uh, uh, but there is some sort of traditional perception of this writer at a wide scope of readership. Right. Yeah. So um, there is just one word. Uh, he was the most popular writer of his time, as witnessed by many readers, um, including his uh, writer colleagues um, Mikhailo Kutsubinsky and Hilary uh, Kosenka. And uh, basically he is quite popular today. Uh, so a writer with a live, not refined language, with clash of ideas, uh, some social and political message, 
um, dramatic suspense, everything you need for uh, to enjoy reading. And actually, a writer who was modern was innovative, self-reflective, and brave enough to intrude into the how he defined them prohibited zones. So he he was not afraid of addressing uh, quite irritating uh, topics of the time, such as uh, sex, uh, love, uh, prostitution, family, human instincts, and so on. Um, in 1920s, for example, when he was already in immigration, his first utopian novel in Ukrainian literature, The Solar Machine, was published four times in a row uh, in Soviet Ukraine. And uh, in, again, in 1920s, uh, he was most acclaimed Ukrainian playwright in Europe ever, whose plays were staged a um, dozen of times. And in addition, I can say that he was also considered um, the first professional writer who could earn living uh, from his writing. You mentioned he also very actively participated in the political developments in Ukraine. So could you uh, tell us just a couple of words about his political activity uh, at that moment and why he um, changed uh, his occupation? <laughs> Right. Um, it actually came um, uh, hand in hand, basically. Um, he was born in a peasant family in 1880 in the, the city of Yelisavet uh, today Kropernitsky, so it's uh, south-central Ukraine. And uh, after graduating the gymnasium, he uh, literally wandered through the country. That was a common practice of revolutionary intelligentsia of uh, the Russian Empire. So eventually he uh, arrived in Kyiv, where he entered the faculty of law at Kyiv University and joined the revolutionary movement at the time. So he became a member of the Ukrainian Socialist Democratic Workers' Party. Uh, he was... Uh, arrested a couple of times, uh, conscripted into the army, and um, in order to avoid exile into Siberia, he voluntarily went into exile in uh, Western Europe in 1907. So, um, but right before World War I erupted, he and his wife Rosalia, who was of Jewish origin, by the way, uh, with false passports returned illegally home. So, uh, speaking about his uh, political career, he was a key figure in uh, the Ukrainian struggle for independence in 1917 to 1920 in particular. He was first prime minister of the Ukrainian government, and he was an author of the most important documents of the time. Although, as a politician, he was not really successful, hmm. uh, because he was really preoccupied with uh, Marxist ideas and pacifism, which didn't really play well at hmm. the time, and uh, contributed to the fall of the young state. Mm -hmm. So, um, from what you told about his personal life, it looks like his um, biography is very intricately connected with his 
writing as well. So I would like to uh, talk a little bit about his, uh, uh, maybe some theoretical underpinnings of um, his writing. So, and uh, in phases of displacement, um, you um, contribute to the conversation about writing in general and about the writer's diverse engagements with inner and outer worlds uh, in particular. So writing at some level uh, can be considered displacement, uh, for, for example, from the oral to the written, from the internalized to the externalized, from the private, intimate to the public, and I would also add to that uh, to the open or exposed. So writers' engagements with the worlds is also to some extent um, some sort of altered state of being or um, consciousness, which can be um, imbued with a variety of factors, those that you already mentioned, history, political situation, social status, cultural nuances. So, and in your research, you negotiate the notions of exile, immigrant, uh, expatriate, nomad, diaspora. Um, you also attempt to put these terms into a broader context of homeland and hostland. Um, would you comment on the theoretical underpinnings of your research? And, uh, um, well, it's since uh, uh, you propose this term of displacement, what faces displacement may or can take? Uh, right. Uh, so, so many terms, uh, uh, exactly. So um, the object of, of uh, my study was actually to fault. And uh, the initial purpose was to contribute to the contemporary theoretical discussion about literature and the experience of displaced writers. And from that uh, perspective, to present a case study of the writings of the Ukrainian writer Volodymyr Vanichenko. So uh, it's an interesting story, uh, by the way. When I started the project, I confronted a methodological dilemma whether to focus on a more established concept, such as uh, exile, emigre, or emigration, or one of more recent vintage, uh, such as diaspora, nomadism, and travel. And uh, my initial intention was to work within the traditional framework of exile studies. However, um, I was confused by the debate among literary critics who tried to defend the exclusiveness of their approach. For example, um, English, the English writer of Polish origin, Joseph Conrad, was identified as immigrant, an exile, and Polish writer. Um, so in going through this uh, terminological jungle, I realized that the one-concept approach would be insufficient mm. to entirely capture Manichanko. So I found displacement the most relevant concept for my study, uh, kind of a blanket term that incorporates experiences in relation to ge geographical place. And right, those terms which you just mentioned, exile, emigre, expatriation, diaspora, immigration, travel, and nomadism, they all represent uh, various forms of geographical move outside the homeland, or as I kind of metaphorically put in my title, different faces of displacement. They may overlap or succeed each other uh, and depend on a number of factors, such as duration of displacement, for example, relation, uh, relationship with the homeland, level of adjustment to the homeland, 
as well as the age and personality of Fred. So, um, Vinichenko travels a lot himself. Um, how would he you just... had to. <laughs> yeah, he had to. Um, what are the stages of his displacement? And um, uh, which one would you consider like the most important or the most crucial for his probably change or transformation? Um, as a case study, I found the figure of Vinichenko to be extremely fitting into the proposed theoretical model. That's why, actually, I've chosen uh, his, uh, his figure. Uh, all these aspects of displacement were interwoven through his writings, sometimes slightly pronounced, sometimes quite evident. So they allowed me to view Vinichenko in many different perspectives and offered um, a new reading of his words. Uh, so, for example, during his first displacement, uh, <clears throat> that was before World War I, his dominant stance was that of the emigre. That is exemplified by his extensive involvement in the Ukrainian cultural and political discourse. And naturally, uh, this emigre stance, uh, stance was also a form of gravitation to what, uh, what I define as familiar territory which elicited the writer's artistic sensitivity. Uh, significantly, uh, out of his uh, about 40 works, um, 36 were set up in Ukraine. So he was still tied very closely to his country. But uh, in time, the familiar territory uh, of the homeland gradually becomes remote, and the writer turns increasingly to the abstract of world ideas. Uh, so that was a turning point in his literary career, marked by a shift from realistic depictions of uh, everyday life to philosophical reflections and intellectual analysis. Uh, at the same time, uh, Venetianko can be also seen as an expatriate and traveler that implies a lesser degree of displacement and more positive attitude. An expatriate may suffer alienation from a homeland society while enjoying advantages that displacement offers. For example, exploration of uh, new places, adventure, exoticism, uh, the atmosphere of international communication. So uh, this is something what Venetianko uh, experienced uh, when he stayed in such uh, centers of Ukrainian modern, uh, sorry, of <laughs> European modernism as Geneva, Zurich, uh, Capri, Paris, uh, Florence, and uh, live in um, Western Ukraine. And also uh, losing touch with the social re reality of his homeland, uh, he increasingly turned to the world of art and beauty, uh, as reflected, for example, in his very popular drama, uh, The Black Panther and the Polar Bear. Uh, as an exile, Venichenko was quite reluctant at the same time to fully adjust to the new milieu. So this mm -hmm. rupture with the homeland was accompanied by difficult social conditions, sense of uh, isolation and insanity about future, which led him to um, nostalgia, uh, nervous breakdowns, and escapist thoughts. Um, actually, that's why 
that's why he came back, even though it was dangerous for him. So he came back here uh, illegally in 1914, right before World War One. But then to show how displacement works and evolves through time, it was necessary to analyze Venetianko's second immigration from, uh, from 1920 mm-hmm. to 1951. So I analyzed this period as a cardinally different period with an emphasis on his utopianism, universalism, and late homecoming. Uh, for example, he channels his existential uncertainty about the present by projecting a utopian future in his utopian novel, which I mentioned, The Solar Machine. Uh, his universalism was a reflection of his uprootedness, which resulted in a reorientation to a broader international audience and issues of uh, international significance. And uh, actually, the study ends with an uh, examination of Venetianko's late homecoming in his novel, uh, Take the Floor Stalin, uh, a swan song, uh, despite uh, its general universalist framework, is also imbued with exilic feeling and autobiographical memories. So there are at least two or three stages of displacement that you discern. And, of course, the stages are overlapping, but they kind of progress and uh, influences the development of not only of his uh, personal views or political views, but of his literary uh, style as well. Uh, naturally, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, when in France, he was also trying to maintain some connection with Ukraine. And he was communicating with people who had more uh, connections or more availability, I would say, to their homeland. And he was asking his friends to tell him stories about Ukraine so that he could write, so that he could write about Ukraine, not only about those uh, impressions that were available to him in France, but through his friends. So would be um, correct to assume that to some extent, uh, at some stage during his displacement, his writing was based on memories about his country? Uh, yes. Um, even though he tried to retrieve uh, all those you know, uh, objects, people from his recent memory. But um, in one of his letters to his uh, patron, Yevhenchi Kalenko, he, he wrote, he complained that, um, no, I don't see people anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I, I forgot. And, you know, a writer is a very sensitive uh, human being, so um, he needed some impressions. And uh, those impressions were far away, so that pushed him to... Uh, to use more abstract ideas. Uh, and, you know, for writing, that was a positive thing, at least um, in his position, because um, you know, he changed his style, first of all, and he became more uh, deeply involved into uh, contemporary ideas. So, uh, for example, you mentioned about the use of uh, memory. It reminded me of um, James Joyce, who mm-hmm. also asked his friends to write, uh, to send him letters with mm-hmm. literary descriptions. And actually, I referred to uh, 
this uh, episode in, in this monograph. And probably Gogol would also be some sort of example here when he went to Moscow and or St. Petersburg. He was also asking his friends or his relatives to send him stories about Ukraine and about Ukrainian traditions and sent him some descriptions of Ukrainian uh, life at that point. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was difficult even to locate him because, um, you know, he, he was in hiding and, you know, uh, police was looking for him. So he was a revolutionary, professional revolutionary, so it was difficult to correspond with him as well. Mm-hmm. So you also mentioned that uh, he was a painter. Would you tell us a little bit about his painting? Because I, I believe for a long time this kind of information wasn't quite available to a broader audience. Uh, at least, I don't know, when I was reading Venichenko <laughs> uh, many years ago, um, nobody mentioned that he was a painter. Um, yeah, it was uh, something new for me. I, I didn't know myself either. And um, actually, this reminded me uh, another important figure, uh, Winston Churchill, who also uh, became, um, I wouldn't say professional, but he obtained that ability of painting skills quite late in his uh, political career. So in Venichenko's case, um, he was really immersed into the uh, world of contemporary art and since he was he said in uh, Germany from 1921 to 25 the high time of uh, you know new um, modern trends like expressionism evolved in Germany and then he moved uh, to France he lived in Paris for some time so definitely he was exposed to new trends in in art he uh, often referred to Uh, new uh, exhibitions, new paintings. Children uh, refer to some uh, Ukrainian uh, painters who were in Europe at the, at the time, and one of them was Mykola Lushenko. Uh, they became friends, actually, so uh, Lushenko influenced uh, a lot Venichenko. Uh, But probably the main reason why he started painting was that that was uh, an escape for him. Mm-hmm. So in his painting he was totally different. There was no any revolutionary ideas. He was someone, uh, some critics uh, defined him as a uh, petit bourgeois painter. So just naturalists, portraits of people, landscapes, and basically local themes, especially when he lived in um, France, when he moved from Paris to South France in the small town of Mougène. This is where he focused a lot on painting. Actually, his um, album was uh, published in Ukraine, so mm-hmm. it's really uh, interesting painting. I, I like that. Mm-hmm. So, and um, how would you describe those? Are those based on uh, some Ukrainian themes and topics, or it's just his um, the expression of his um, um, internal uh, struggle, or how would you how would you describe those paintings in general? And where the uh, where the originals kept, by the way? Uh, uh, some of the originals <coughs> were transported to Ukraine. Uh, there was an exhibition, um, and some of them are still in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is the Venichenko archive which I, I believe um, owned by the Shevchenko Society in mm-hmm. the United States. 
Um, uh, so uh, I would say that he focused on just local uh, landscapes. Mm-hmm. He, uh, um, he mentioned Ukrainian topics maybe once or twice. So he kind of didn't, he was not much interested in Ukraine at, at the time, so he um, painted what he could see. Mm-hmm. So, and those were uh, local lands, uh, landscapes of uh, southern France, basically. Mm-hmm. So, and France really played a uh, great, well, big role, huge role in his um or literary probably transformation when he was moving from some more concrete descriptions or concrete ideas to more abstract ideas. And at some point he even wanted to present France at the international uh, level when he wanted to present his writing as representative of France. Is that um, correct? Yes. Yes, that's true. Um, actually, uh, uh, as an ambitious writer, Renachenko always uh, wanted to be a part of an international scene. Already during his first displacement, he thought of being on a mission, kind of a political mm-hmm. <laughs> mission, to uh, represent the Ukrainian nation, a nation and culture. Uh, he thought of an international response while working on his three-volume the Utopia, The Solar Machine, and uh, looking for a publisher in Germany, France, Czechoslovakia, uh, later in the United States. He actually he wanted to uh, re, redo the, uh, the narrative of that utopia and actually criticize the uh, current um, uh, Nazism in, in Europe. Uh, he contacted uh, famous critics uh, to write a preface uh, for, for his book like uh, George Brandes, uh, Herbert Hauptmann, or Romain uh, Roland. Um, actually, his desire to integrate in, integrate into the local, first of all, French literary process became especially clear in 1930s when he was cut off from the literary process in Soviet Ukraine. Mm-hmm. You know that his writings were totally prescribed uh, starting 1932, and he. Uh, he stopped receiving his uh, royalties in 1933, the next year. Um, and actually, he even resorted to some literary mystification. Uh, this is really a very mm-hmm. interesting story. Uh, he ascribed his authorship of one of uh, the novels called The Leprosarium in 1938 to a female writer when he sent uh, the manuscript to the uh, to a publisher. Mm-hmm. So he called his, um, uh, himself uh, Ivan Volvin. And Volvin uh, consists, as you can hear, from two first vowels uh, of his first and last name. So uh, that's how he wanted really to integrate in the, into the uh, French uh, literary discourse. Mm-hmm. And uh, all his work starting from uh, the Solar Machine in mid-1920s, he translated them uh, in other languages. He always uh, worked either himself or hired people to translate those. <clears throat> and um, when he thought of publications, especially after World War II already, he uh, planned uh, to publish first in the uh, French translation so that the book will be accessible to as many writers as possible. 
um, so uh, he was translating his Ukraine. So he was first writing in Ukrainian, and then he was translating his works into French or uh, other languages. Or, or he was yes. writing. Was he writing in French originally? <laughs> uh, no, he didn't write in French. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he definitely could speak, but mm-hmm. um, he didn't have that sense of style, so he could mm-hmm. write. So on the other, on uh, on some level, it can also be considered some sort of displacement from one language to another, or from one way of writing to a different way of writing. When you're not just producing works in the original, but you're just like copying them using different medium, meaning different. Uh, language. Right, yeah, but um, speaking about his uh, political uh, commitment, uh, political agenda, which always accompanied him, uh, he always thought about his readers, mm-hmm. and he wanted as many people as possible read his books, because he always pr- uh, brought um, some ideas, uh, clashing ideas, and he really wanted that people would understand those ideas, and Bringing that kind of suspense, uh, intrigue, and especially um, during his second displacement, he switched his style from uh, philosophical and analytical uh, writing to more popular, I would say, social and detective style. So, kind of to invite readers uh, that it will be more interesting and intriguing to read. So you mentioned that uh, he wanted to deliver his ideas to as many as uh, to as many people as possible. What was his main message to his audience? Um, he always considered himself uh, uh, um, how he put it, all-sided revolutionary, mm-hmm. contrary to one-sided those uh, uh, those who wanted just political power. For him, it was important not only to have that political power, but to change people, to change them, their moral and uh, social perspectives. Uh, that's why he always, uh, he thought of his writing as a tool, basically, uh, that he can use uh, to uh, impose his ideas onto his readers. But at the same time, he... Uh, he was really committed to aesthetical, aesthetic principle in his writing. So, uh, actually, both uh, competed in in his writings. And uh, during his first displacement, actually, uh, those aesthetic principle won more often uh, than not. But during his second displacement, when he was cut off from uh, the literary process in Ukraine, he really. Uh, was engaged in a new uh, political uh, agenda, which was in the interwar period, you know, um, uh, this, you know, Nazism and a lot of nationalism in Europe. So basically he came to the conclusion that the contemporary world is uh, mad Mm -hmm. and um, the revolutions were only uh, a century in attempt to heal, uh, and, and he was right to some extent in view of uh, what was happening in Europe at the time. So, and he um, created, he started thinking uh, of uh, creating a new philosophy, and this is what actually he created uh, called Concordism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
that was his uh, new agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, Unfortunately, uh, I'm familiar uh, with Vinnychenko, uh, who was presented to me through the perspective of Soviet criticism. And uh, when I was reading your, your research, well, I was actually uh, very happy because um, your research opened some new perspectives for me to uh, reconsider uh, Vinnychenko's writings. So uh, I, I would like um, to ask you uh, to describe how um, how Vinichenko's image was constructed in Soviet Union or in Soviet Ukraine, and why his uh, why were his works banned and censored and censored? Um, what was it about that um, message that uh, he uh, encoded that was probably dangerous uh, to the Ukrainian readers at that point? Um. Uh, certainly, because he was considered a political enemy, and uh, mm-hmm. in, there was a political decision by the Soviet authorities to declare him persona non grata in 1921. Uh, but uh, interestingly, during the period of Ukrainization, his works were allowed for publications, mm-hmm. and th- this is uh, where he became again <laughs> the most popular writer uh, in uh, Ukrainian literature. Um, but you know, when his um, mainly old works were allowed for publications in numerous volumes, his new works, when in which he tried to present his new political agenda, uh, were rejected by the censors. Uh, so uh, they they wanted something. Uh, what Fenichenko wrote some time ago about when he spoke against Tsarist, for example. So that was acceptable for <coughs> uh, the Bolshevik government, but definitely they didn't want anything that Fenichenko would speak against the new regime. And he spoke quite uh, openly about that. So um, in addition to that, uh, in Soviet literary criticism, the principle of and chaos was applied. And this is when literature uh, written abroad cannot be true literature because it mm. is detached from the native uh, social and cultural milieu and, and become uh, like a, a, sterile, a sterile flower. Mm-hmm. So we all know that this approach was largely moderated by Soviet ideological prejudice towards uh, so-called Ukrainian bourgeois nationalists. And uh, we know that such interest might raise suspicion from uh, secret service. But in 1960s, uh, following the partial democratization of political life and the rehabilitation of some writers in the USSR, there were attempts to publish Ronichenko's children's story uh, in a journal. Uh, but however, um, after the story was printed, the entire print run of the journal was destroyed and really? its editing was uh, punished. Right. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, at the, at the same time, the stories of uh, Ivan Bunin, a uh, Russian uh, famous writer, were published. So I believe that a con- colonial approach mm-hmm. was also at work. Um, interestingly, that Venichenko was leftist. He was a Marxist, a socialist, whereas Bunin was not. So clearly it was a colonial approach at that time. And 
Paradoxically, that um, even in the diaspora, certain circles considered Venichenko uh, to be too left-leaning and modernistic. Uh, they refused to support the Almanac uh, the Northern Lights uh, in Edmonton. And um, after it published Venichenko's novel, The Deposits of Gold, so as a result, the Almanac folded. Uh, so he, he was under fire from both sides, actually, for being quite brave uh, as a writer. And uh, only um, the Soviet Union, when um, only the Soviet Union was near collapse, so Venichenko's works became accessible again and aroused almost a euphoria. Uh, among readers. Mm-hmm. So one of his, uh, his uh, final novel is um, Take the Floor, Stalin. Yeah. And um, when I read that novel, uh, it struck me as something very ambivalent and ambiguous. On the one hand, uh, he um, seems to be open to this dialogue with uh, Soviet Ukraine. On the other hand, um, he takes uh, his um, standpoint, of course, and uh, he probably is still optimistic about some positive developments. So how would you um, d- describe this final work? Uh, yes, this novel is really, uh, at least it has two, two layers, so it's really complex to uh, understand. So uh, first of all, he... Uh, manifested his political agenda, and that was uh, to prevent the new war. Um, he actually the um, when he the idea of this novel came when he learned that uh, the Soviet Union um, <clears throat> tested a nuclear bomb. So he mm-hmm. was worried about the the world peace, and that was his uh, message to. Uh, to Stalin, actually, because he uh, he wrote some letters to Stalin at the time. So uh, I, I I believe that uh, Stalin might read those letters, and also Lenchenko um, sent he, him his manuscript. So I don't really it's an interesting topic uh, what was accessible to Stalin himself, but he wanted to have to have a dialogue. Mm-hmm. So this is on one hand, but on the other hand. Uh, that was a, a, a literary piece of uh, nostalgia and exilic sensibility. This is something really hidden, but uh, going through this text, you can really understand that. Um, so, on the one hand, the message is uh, addressed to the whole world to improve these uh, economic relations. Basically, uh, his idea of collectorcratism was based on improving economic uh, relations and secure a global peaceful coexistence as a permanent state. So uh, what is this novel about is that um, it's a big allegory on the verge of of death. uh, Former Ukrainian revolutionary Marko Ivanenko tells a story to his brother Stepan about an organization of Termites that gradually undermine um, the powerful Soviet Union from inside. So, and you know, reference to the Colossus with a feet of clay. And Stepan then is sent to Ukraine to uncover this secret organization. 
pretending to be a journalist uh, from the main Soviet newspaper, uh, uh, Pravda. Stepan conducts a survey with representatives of different social and political strata and various regions. So he was shocked by results of the survey, which show that the majority of the population has an uh, hatred, a biting hatred of the political leadership and uh, lives in condition of poverty and terror. So uh, Stepan um, infer, infers that the whole country is comprised of termites, which will sooner or later causes its collapse. So he related this story to his friends from the Politburo, and that friends actually gave a speech before Stalin and all members of the political bureau suggesting that implementation of uh, this collectocratism is the only way to avoid a, domest a domestic and international crisis. Uh, and um, when was this um, uh, novel published in Ukraine? It was first. It was published in diaspora in 1971. Oh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that the first publication, mm -hmm. because the archive was housed in the United States, mm -hmm. and later it was published, it was published in a journal, mm -hmm. a journal publication, so it was already open, but we can see how um, visionary uh, Venetianko was in that the, this termize, mm -hmm. which means the ordinary people would uh, gradually undermine the powerful uh, Soviet Union, this is what what happened? Mm -hmm. So, how would you um, characterize the contemporary stage of the reception of uh, Vinnychenko? Um, to what extent was his Soviet image uh, transformed or modified um, at at the present moment? If if uh, those transformations exist at all? Uh, uh, right, it's uh, a very interesting question. Um, because there is personal connection to that. So as a student myself in late 1980s and early 1990s, I went through the uh, disintegration of the Soviet Union and the uh, you know, uh, resurrection of independent Ukraine. I witnessed Manichenko's uh, uh, revival as a writer and politician. But that was a complex and winding uh, process. Because, for example, communists at the time tried to strengthen their position by appealing to Venechenko's leftist views. But the success of his literary works and plays was huge, and he returned to the Ukrainian literary canon. I was impressed with one response to a survey when I was uh, working on my thesis um, about uh, one's favorite writer and work. And that was uh, the solar machine by uh, Venichenko. So this means that the writer survived time and still speaks to his readers. Uh, I was also mesmerized recently to watch on YouTube something you can do too, <laughs> uh, watching his play uh, The Law, mm. a dramatic and minimalist masterpiece, just few uh, characters in the play. Uh, why it's... Um, it's so interesting today because actually it speaks about eternal topic of love and family relationship. Uh, so I was amazed how uh, contemporary was uh, that play. Uh, but there was also a danger of uncritical perception of Venichenko when everyone who was previously forbidden 
was now accepted as a hero. Uh, so Venichenko, for example, was identified as an anti-utopist for his solar machine. One of his researchers, for example, Halina Sevachenko, compared his utopia to anti-utopia such as uh, we by Evgeny uh, Zamyakin and uh, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Uh, but Venichenko's novel had never been previously considered anti-utopia. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> this misunderstanding might also come from a complex structure of the novel consisting of three phases, uh, anti-utopia, dystopia, and positive utopia. Yes, Venichenko showed horrors of the implementation of a utopian dream at the beginning, but in order to reinforce it by, by the end to make it positive. So Venichenko actually turned Venichenko's main idea upside down, saying that the writer was opposed to future communist society. He never was. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, uh, some of Venichenko's utopian dreams are not so utopian today. I should say. For example, his concerns about preserving nature are being realized today through global efforts on climate change and ecological awareness. And even his idea of a universal brotherhood is gradually taking shape through the creation of uh, the European Union and globalization, even though we, we also um, quite significant drawbacks recently. Um, Unfortunately, not all Venichenko's works have been published, including some of his novels, but um, there is uh, still a huge interest in those works, and as far as I know, uh, uh, scholars in the uh, Institute of Ukrainian Literature in in Kyiv are looking for those manuscripts, and uh, it's just a matter of time when all works will be uh, published. Mm -hmm. So... um what uh, Venichenko's work uh, would you recommend as a starting point for discovering Venichenko as a very diverse writer? Uh, I, I cannot really uh, recommend just one book. You, <laughs> you, you would have to take at least uh, a work from different periods. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um, I would maybe recommend start from his uh, short story from his early period to to understand his um, his uh, initial uh, realistic narratives so he wrote about life of uh, simple people peasants um, then he moved to analytical analysis philosophical reflections when he as I mentioned uh, lost his touch with his homeland so um, I would advise you to read uh, there is his uh, two, two novels, a sequel, um, Boshke. Um, uh, so that was really a uh, relation for me, how he started analyzing revolutionary movement. So he came from a different perspective. He noticed that uh, those revolutionaries were not perfect people. Uh, he wanted... <laughs> everyone to, uh, to be perfect. And actually, here is the problem with Zanichenko. He was totalitarian in his views, in his approaches. He wanted all people to be happy. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is danger that, and from today's perspective, that definitely this is something we have to avoid. And then moving forward, 
uh, I would say um, I would definitely recommend to um, <clears throat> read one of his dramas. So it's uh, uh, either The Lie, which was staged about 100 times in uh, European theaters in, in many countries, so it was huge success. And uh, <clears throat> But personally, I like his play uh, The Prophet, which... Um, was published in the in the diaspora first, but I don't I don't really know if it was staged yet. So it's really a, <clears throat> speaking about how all ideologies, uh, how uh, whatever they are positive, they uh, tend to to change to uh, to to be modified in the <clears throat> contemporary society. Well, wonderful. Uh, thank you so much, Mikola, for this wonderful conversation. And thank you so much for your research. Uh, for me, it opened Vinichenko from many different perspectives. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you, Natalia, for inviting me uh, for this interesting interview. And uh, I, I would like uh, more people to take a look at this monograph. And uh, definitely, he is the author which still unexplored, and there are still more things to um Explore yeah, of course, of course. Uh, he's he's a very diverse uh, person and very diverse artist, I would say. But thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure.